0: Hey there, welcome to episode 35 of the Craftish Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is brought to you by the folks over at Plum Deluxe Teas who ask you, do you like trying new things? Do you like trying new things especially when they're delivered to you in a piping hot cup of goodness? Well then, it is time to treat yourself to a Plum Deluxe Tea of the Month subscription. So for only $10 a month, you'll receive a hand-blended, all-organic, loose leaf tea thoughtfully chosen for the season. Think of it as having your very own personal tea gatherer presenting you with white, black, oolong, and chai teas that fit your lifestyle. You can treat yourself to a membership or like say for Mother's Day hint, hint. give it as a gift and it is a gift that keeps on giving because it surprises the recipient with herbal goodness right in their mailbox every single month. Tea club members also enjoy special benefits like exclusive discounts, free shipping on all purchase, and access, and this is my favorite part, to a loving and supportive tea group. Doesn't that just sound delightful? and caffeine-free and gift subscriptions are also available. So visit plumdeluxe.com/t to join the community right now. This week I sat down and chatted with my good friend and colleague who's also a TV host, designer, creative director and best-selling craft book author, Mark Montana. We talked a lot, well, we talked about a lot of things, frankly, but we talked about his childhood experience with a Native American dance troupe and how it spawned his love for artisanal design, how important it is to stay focused on your own work, especially right now when we're all presented with an onslaught of gorgeous social media photos of other people's work, which is so easily distracting. We talked about how his career path evolved from fashion to craft the challenges of working in public television, and how embracing new media has given both he and I access to audiences in ways that we never really have experienced before. This is a meaty episode, folks, so let's get started. Mark Montano, thank you so much for coming on Craftish. I wanted to open with a quote from... Actually, actually, a book I wrote, but it's a book of interviews called Craftcore, and um, it was about eight years ago. This came out, but there was something. Let me read the quote, and then and then I'll go on from there. This was in relation. I was asking if you credited anyone for opening the professional crafty doors for you, and here's what you said: Opening the the professional crafty doors. Um, I think that those doors are ones that you have to open yourself. I don't think anybody says. Come on into our crafty club. You're welcome. You do your work, and if it's good, and if you put yourself out there, you become more recognized by people. I don't want to say the word accepted because that's not why I do anything. I don't care about being accepted. I care about having a crafty, creative life. I care that I get up in the morning and make something or bead something or paint something. That's what I care about. I think sometimes we spend too much time worrying about what other people think of us, you know, my mommy loves me and that's good enough for me. (laughs) I love that quote. And I wanted to talk to you about how do you still, is this still very much your ethos and, and has it become harder to not care about what other people think or what other people are doing now that we are in the days of everyone doing that via Instagram and Pinterest and social media, there's all these like gorgeous sort of images assaulting us at every moment.
1: Wow. Well, I can say this. And first of all, thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. Um, you know, I adore you and i do anything for you. So I'm really glad that you asked me. Thank you, love. Let's go to this question. This this quote, that is how I live my life. It's how I've always lived my life. Uh, I really try not to care what other people think about me, because I think it can really pull us down if we start comparing ourselves to other people. Uh you know, recently we've seen a lot of people on Instagram sort of coming out, if you will, saying like, hey, this is what I look like with eczema. And the, the pictures that I show you are only of me looking absolutely beautiful at my thinnest and most gorgeous. And then other people saying, hey, this isn't what it's like, you know, this yeah. beautiful picture behind the scenes, it's something else. So I think social media and what we're seeing on the Internet can really give us the wrong impression you know, we all have these very complicated lives. We're all busy. We all have people that we love and people that we care about and worries and, you know, financial burdens. And we don't see that, I think, when we look at a beautiful picture on the internet and start comparing ourselves to other people. But we have to realize that behind all of that, you know, is a human being. And it just doesn't pay to compare yourself to, to those things.
0: Do you wonder, though, I mean, from a psychological perspective, that's super healthy. But from a business perspective, do you take a different stance knowing that companies are absolutely judging a book by its cover?
1: Well, I I feel like we have to be we have to present a body of work more that it's more than just one project or one thing. Um, It's about it's about how we've sort of lived our creative lives and how we've presented ourselves and how we've shown that we've grown over the years that people get attached to. Uh, It's not just one thing. Uh, We're always changing things are always, you know, mixing up and turning over and being flipped upside down. If you stay true to yourself and stay on your path, um, stick to your, you know, the work that you're doing, um, push yourself to be better, you will be recognized for that. I really do believe that. Uh, and, and that's the only thing I really have to say on on that. I It's so hard. There's so many amazing people out there. Um, but we're only seeing a, a little slice of them.
0: Conversely... Um, from you know, feeling like people don't open the crafty doors necessarily for you. Do you, as now an industry leader, um, you've been in this industry for over a decade, but really much longer if we count fashion, and we'll, we'll talk about that journey in a second. Now that you are where you are, do you feel any sort sense of responsibility to actually open doors for the next up and comers?
1: anyone who emails me or asks for advice, I try to get back to. Um, It takes a lot of time to get back to everyone, get to to answer every question. But I really do try. And especially for people who are wanting to sort of do the things that I do. But I'm very honest. I say this is hard work. It's about being consistent. It's about consistently putting out um, content and, and doing it as well as you can possibly do it uh it's it's not easy but but it can be done so i try to be encouraging to people i can't open any doors for them i can't say hey you know i can do this for you all i can do is say i think it's great that you want to do this i'm behind you like, if you have something that you want to promote that works with what I do, let me help you. I'll, I'll, you know, post a picture or mention you. Um, that's about what I can do for people. But I encourage everyone, if, if this is what you want to do, then go for it. My mom used to tell me um, when I was growing up, I said, I, you know, I want to be a fashion designer when I grow up. And I grew up in a very small sort of backward town. This was not something people did not leave this town and go where did, to New York. Where City. did you grow up? I don't think I knew. I grew up in La Junta, Colorado. Oh. Yeah. I'm from
0: Colorado, uh, too. Oh. Broomfield. Oh, well, there
1: you go. (laughs) So you, you might know La Junta. It's pretty tiny. It's
0: very tiny, yes.
1: And my mom would say, well, there are fashion designers in the world, so if you want to be a fashion designer, I guess that's an option for you, isn't it?
0: You know what? That's a great.
1: <laughs> there <laughs> it is.
0: Practical and yet really it's- supportive.
1: And you know what? I
0: lo- what I love much- about that and how that coincides with what you're saying is that perhaps what that suggests is that instead of opening doors for people, you really promote helping opening helping to open their minds towards the possibilities and their and their own capability of bringing those possibilities into fruition
1: yes, encourage it, encouragement. I try to be as encouraging as I possibly can. I know that, you know, everyone has, has, you know, things they aspire to, they have dreams, they have things they've always wanted to do. You can't do those things unless you get off your tush and start doing them. And so hopefully I can give somebody a little kick in the pants.
0: Your I was just on your website today. And I've noticed over the past few years how how much you've really refined it, and you have such a clear branding now. That's such a that's such a you know corporate word to give uh, to use with an artist, but both your YouTube page, you know, and your uh, your actual website are really cohesive. Everything looks as if it belongs with each other, and yet you're making you're working on sort of you know with Similar mediums, but a lot of different products. How, how did you refine that? How did you come into your own sort of crafty identity?
1: That took a long time. Uh, it, it wasn't my focus. I wasn't really um, about how I presented on the internet. I've always been sort of anti-internet, even though it's such an integral part of how we work now. It is pretty much the only part of how we work. But I always fought it. For me, it was always about the work. It was always about the creativity. It was always about getting up and being able to do something creative. And then we had this sort of added element. Like, oh, well, you can do something creative, but you also have to take a beautiful picture of it. And you have to Mm -hmm. post it on Instagram and on Facebook and you have to make a video for it for YouTube and then you have to make a smaller video for Facebook etc cetera, etc cetera, on and on and on and on and I just started working on ways that would make that easier that would make that process streamlined and the only way to do it was to come up with a brand with, with was you know to put it under the umbrella of one thing which was make your mark and then work from there and and i just branded everything with the same logo and things started sort of coming together
0: I mean, you I, having uh, that name. I have to tell you, <laughs> there have been many times where I've shake, shaken my fist, Montano, because of course, make your mark. I was like, <laughs> Vicky, v- <ugh."> like, <laughs> like, you know, like what? Oh, it, like, it's just so perfect. It was absolutely meant to be. It works so perfectly for who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, I, I feel I feel lucky that it's uh, it's out there.
0: <laughs> but also, do you think that um, I feel like even just your. Style of creating has become more sort of on point for your overall brand. Was that something that you had to refine as well?
1: It is. And I will tell you, this is where sort of paying attention to what people responded to helped me sort of refine how I created at the same time, especially since now I work for these companies and I'm trying to get them as much attention as possible. So for me, it's about, you know, for me, it's about color. You'll notice that I am, I'm not afraid of color. Give me as much color as you can, and I will take it all and I will do something with it. Um, So I know that when people are on the internet during the day, you know, they might see, oh, here's a picture of a gray sofa. Not so excited. Then they see a Mark Montano project, which has a hundred different colors in it and it might wake them up a little bit. It might say, "Oh, what's going on here?" It may not be their style. They may say to themselves, "You know, I would do that project, but I would maybe only use, you know, green and pink, not green, pink, orange, yellow, blue." Right. Magenta, olive, black, white, etc. <laughs> etc. Et et <laughs> et but I got their attention yeah. and I got them to look at it. And so in a way, it's actually given me permission to use more color, to be more um, daring in the projects I create, uh, and to be a little bit more, yeah, to be more fearless.
0: That's what I find so exciting about being um, a designer with some form of a voice is that whether people know it or not, your creativity is encouraging them to become more creative in in and of themselves, especially when they don't want to make it exactly like you do, you know, especially when you're just the genesis of what they create. It's so fun.
1: I love that. And people will say, hey, they, I, you know, I love when people, they'll email me and say, hey, I love this project. We would like to make these and sell them at our craft bazaar yeah. for our church. And I'm like, go for it. Have a blast. That's why I put it out there.
0: Me too. That's how I feel about it too. I, I feel like, I mean, I do ask that they, on their website or whatever if they credit the original design, depending on, you know, what the pattern is or whatever. But for me, if I can be a part of helping another, usually woman, um, you know, make some extra money for her family, that's awesome. Like, yeah. And then also feel creative and get some props from people who think that, like, he or she is the most, like, creative human being, like, or artistic human being or capable human being they've ever seen. Like, that's good stuff.
1: hmm it really is. And, you know, you do have to pay it forward. We've been blessed that we get to be creative every day. It's not always the easiest thing in the world, but our creativity is a gift. And I find, like everything else, the more generous you are with it, the more you get back in return.
0: Absolutely. You've it's ta- like an energy. It's absolutely. If there's, I say this all the time. I probably overuse this flu- this phrase, but the ebb and flow of ideas is really something like i think is the key to success in everything in relationships and life
1: mm-hmm.
0: in work you've talked about putting out a lot of content um, in respect to you know being proud and working hard but i want to talk a little bit about the actual content process because you put out a ton of content Uh, breaking it down beautifully photographed in both blog form and videos. Will you talk a little bit about your process in coming up with ideas? Do you schedule? Do you let sort of a theme lead the way? Is it solely based on the products that you're sent by the companies you work with? And how important is it that you keep it up on a regular basis that your audience can count on?
1: Wow, that's a lot. So I try to do about seven to eight projects per month. Mm. And I'm really blessed to be able to work with a lot of different amazing companies that make amazing products. And the reason that I met most of these companies is because I used them when I first started writing DIY books, and I used them on while you were out. So I was really familiar with these products. And over the years, you know, we developed this relationship. Now, the reason I use the products that I use is because they're the best I find on the market and the ones that I just relate to the most. Mm-hmm. So my brain is automatically um, set to coming up with projects that will use, in one way or another, the products that are in my arsenal um, of the companies that I work with. And what I always start off with is just, uh, you know, quick sketches of, oh, this would be fun. Um, I try to think about things that people might need, a rug, an easy way to make a set of curtains, Mm -hmm. a pillow for their sofa. You know, I think a lot about those things that people can really relate to that everyone has and everyone needs a different perspective on and a different way to make one, an easier way to make one, a fun way to paint one. Things like that, and then I go from there, and then I sort of pick uh, the projects that I want to make for the month. We definitely work ahead of time, and uh, how far ahead of time? I'd say a good month ahead of time. Okay. We probably have six or eight videos in the bank right now that we're waiting to photograph, finish editing, things like that.
0: Do you shoot? Do you shoot more than one video in a day?
1: No, okay. but we shoot. We shoot. Um, at least two videos a week, sometimes three, if we can. So we can always be a little bit ahead of, ahead of schedule.
0: Are you handling all of the editing and graphics yourself?
1: No. I have a full-time assistant named Julie, who you can meet with, if you watch my Facebook Lives on Fridays. Um, she's awesome. She does the editing for me, and she helps me with everything. She's amazing. I would not be able to have this job without her.
0: That's a big career shift, um, and maybe it wasn't for you, um, but for many in, in our general industry, the ability to, frankly, afford a full-time assistant, getting to that level of business is is kind of a big deal. Does Did that pathway progress because of your business background because your father made you go to school to get a business degree?
1: That certainly helped. Um, Being good with money is really important for people who are creative because uh, it goes hand in hand. And as much as we'd like to just go off and buy everything we want and make everything we want, we can't always do that. I mean... Uh, so, being good with money and and managing your money certainly, that ability helps me. It uh, helps me run this business pretty smoothly. Um, sometimes there are bumps in the road, but mostly it's been knockwood, pretty good. Yeah, Be- because I work with these pretty big companies, and because they've given me very big responsibilities. Because of that, you know, I I'm paid enough to to have an assistant, and I'm. You know, I'm really fortunate. I don't, you know, I don't take it for granted at all. But it took a long time to get to this point in my career. It took 11 DIY books and five DIY TV shows and enough credibility that they said, okay, this guy's worth, you know, this much.
0: Do you think that, given your background, you felt... Maybe maybe more comfortable going in and knowing your value than many people in an industry that's really undervalued might to set those boundaries those business boundaries if you will,
1: I think you have to know what you what you are willing what you have to offer, and a lot of people do things for free mm-hmm. um I, you know, I'll do something for free for someone. You know, if I really want to work with the company, I may work with them for free one time for one project and say, "Hey, this is what I can do for you. I did this project for you. I'd like to continue moving forward, and let's talk about how much this might be worth to you." Um, that's how I approach it. But a lot of people do a lot of work for free, and a lot of people undervalue what yeah. they offer to to this industry and to these companies that need content just like everyone else. They need to be seen. They need people to know about their product in, a, in this highly competitive market and they need people to buy it or they're not going to be in business.
0: Yeah. And I think what you said is really key that working for free is, is okay if, if it's done you know, once on a one-time basis for a company, then you can almost write that off mentally as a PR budget.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or as research and development, depending on how you approach it. But knowing that there's value in what you do past that is really important, not only for you and your own career, but really for our industry as a whole, for your fellow designers and independent uh, contractors.
1: Absolutely.
0: Talk a little bit. I mentioned. I referenced. I referenced your business business degree, but let's go back a little bit further. Talk a little bit about, and now it makes so much more sense um, now that I know that you were from a small town in Colorado. About your your beginnings in becoming creative, you were in a dance group when you were <laughs> when you were a kid. I'm going to pronounce this probably wrong. Kosher Indian dancers kashari of course that sounds much more accurate kashari indian dancers and that and you really credit that well also that you have a bajillion family members who are creative but you really credit that as sort of like the beginnings of your love for beating and color and design will you talk a little bit about just sort of your your artistic and creative foundation as a kid
1: well, it's it started pretty pretty early on, like most of us. We had creative family members who encouraged that. But in sixth grade you were allowed to join this club in my very small town called the Kashari Indian Dancers, and they taught you traditional Sioux, Kiowa, and Navajo songs, beating, costume making, um and dances. And you would perform those dances twice a year in the winter and summer ceremonials, and you would perform them with all the costumes that you had made yourself under the guidance of then Buck Brashears, the man who started the Kasharis and this particular little Kiva Museum in my hometown, and this other artist um, in residence named Michael Bear, who was really fantastic. And they taught us how to do traditional peyote beadwork, how to make bustles, um, Sioux and Kiowa feather headdresses, loom work, everything that leather work, everything that you needed to, to do to to know to make these traditional costumes, so that you could participate in these dances. And that education is what really, uh, for lack of a better word, fertilized everything in my life Mm -hmm. from then on. I realized, wow, you know, you don't just have to do one thing. You can do beadwork. You can work with leather. You can paint. You can, you know, you can cut abalone shells on a, you know, a bandsaw. Like, there's so many cool things. And it just opened my world. And that's how I started. That's how it started.
0: And so, cut to, a, I guess, a couple years later, if I'm doing the math correctly. You are about 14, and you've decided fashion. Like, that's your gig.
1: It was it was nuts. So, there was this uh, transsexual man who worked at the 7-Eleven in our hometown. His name was Carlos. And I loved him. He was just i just thought he was the coolest thing ever i mean just the coolest and every month he would save the only copy of vogue and gq magazine under the counter for me for when i would come in with Mm -hmm. my allowance and he he was just he'd be like i have your magazines and i would just pour over these magazines starting from a very young age uh my mom was super into fashion too and we would just, you know, look at all the pictures and look at pictures of New York and Paris. And, and that's when I decided I am going to move to New York and become a fashion designer. And I don't know how it popped in my head. I just thought that's what I want to do. And, and from that moment on, not a day went by that I did not plan and calculate a way to get to New York to pursue that career.
0: At that point, are you designing your own clothes? Are you designing clothes for friends? I mean, what did my you mom. wear to prom?
1: So I, my mom said, hey, look at this top. I think you could make this top. This was in, a, in like a Vogue magazine. It was just a little camisole top. She's like, let's go buy the fabric and you can make it for me. <laughs> so, see what, so she, see what she did
0: there? <laughs>
1: yeah, she did. And I did. I started making her like little camisole tops, and then, you know, I would, you know, hem pants for my brothers. And I was really into sewing, and I really, really loved it. By the time my senior year came around, I actually made my own tuxedo. Uh, did you really? Yeah, I did. Top I love bottom. that.
0: I didn't even know that when I asked you the prom question wow that's that's not easy like piping and everything
1: no piping but I did do a satin lapel and uh yeah it was it it turned out pretty well I have to say do you still have pictures I have one picture but I will not show it (laughs) it. I'll show it to you okay but I can't
0: post it all right that's pretty fantastic so your mom was all in what about your dad
1: Well, my dad, too, because I remember telling my dad I want to make my own tuxedo for the prom and I want a white top hat. And he obviously (laughs) found me a white top hat. I love your parents. My dad, not a man of many words, but always (laughs) like when it counted, he showed up.
0: I mean, honestly, that's 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 the credo I live by. I mean, this is the key to success is show up. Don't be a dick. Like that's it. Like Seriously. that's it. That's all you have to do. Just show up and don't be a jerk to people. Mm-hmm. Your dad had it with his white top hat.
1: Yeah, and gloves, white gloves.
0: I mean, the only thing that can make that better is if there's some kind of cane and/or monocle involved.
1: Not, not, mm, not to be seen, but mm. uh, <laughs> definitely the hat, the hat, and the gloves.
0: But he obviously, so he's the reason, though, that your your first degree was in business and not fashion, correct?
1: Yes. Very adamant about learning uh, you know having the basics. My dad has always been a business person. He's worked since he was 12 years old. He he knew the importance of of how to ma- of uh, of managing money. And he taught us at a very young age, this is what you do. You do not buy anything on credit unless you can pay it off. You do not, you know, overextend yourself. And because of that, I never have. He drove it home.
0: Yeah, and, that's
1: and such- if we wanted something extra, we worked for it.
0: Yeah, that's such a gift. Uh, so many artists. There are two things that I that I've seen in my experience that. Artists and crafters and artisans struggle with the most, and that is the ability to be a publicist for themselves, go out there and sell their work, and the and the ability to manage a business. And so, you having that foundation and then going in for a fashion degree uh, really probably gave you a major a major leg up.
1: It certainly helped when I when I started my first collection. I knew how to manage the money. I knew how much I needed, you know, to get going. Um, I knew how much I had to save, and then even when I opened my first boutique, I had to—I scrimped and saved until I had enough money to open that first boutique, and—and and then I worked my tail off to make sure that it stayed open. That I had a store for seventeen years in in New York City.
0: That's amazing. And I
1: opened it with five thousand dollars. Hmm.
0: And how? What was the arc of that business? How do you decide? I mean, seventeen years is a very large portion of your life, friend. how How do you watch that business grow and then decide at one point to let it go? Is oh. it like a child? Do you send it off to college? Like you move on?
1: Oh, it was. It was hard. Um,
0: was it home decor, fashion based, all of the above?
1: It was all fashion. Okay, it was fashion. Was we it all some, your?
0: Was it all your stuff,
1: all, or was it? All, my collections, yeah. Okay.
0: And we should also stop before we move on and just reference that you worked for Oscar De la Renta and put out your own collections for years and years. That's that's really where your heart was at the beginning was fashion, correct?
1: It really was, and because of because of my career in fashion, I got to meet many amazing people, uh, and that's how I started. That's how I got to write my first book. I one of my editors. A woman who used to borrow my clothes for Cosmopolitan magazine started Cosmo Girl magazine and said, oh, I wow. want you to do an article for Cosmo Girl called Cool Room because I love your apartment. And I want you to show people how to do this crazy stuff that you do in your apartment. So every month I would make over a teen girl's bedroom and I'd show people how to cover a lampshade or make a side table or, you know, make a bedspread or you know whatever it was like teen girls basically you know yeah. what what I what I am at heart <laughs> so, <laughs> a teen girl basically <laughs> and that article which i wrote for 10 years um after the second year i turned it into my first book which is super sweet the ultimate guide to The Ultimate Girls' Guide to Bedroom Make. Oh God, I can't even remember the name of it. It's been so long. (laughs) The Ultimate Teen Bedroom Makeover Guide. I don't know something like that. Super sweet. S U I T E.
0: So, from there, not from there. This is I'm not working linearly, but you have continued to write craft books, and you have this franchise, the big ass book franchise, which has kind of broken a lot of current barriers. You know, back when we started writing books, people were giving out book deals like they were candy, not to insinuate that's why you got yours, but it's definitely why I got mine. Um, Because there weren't, there wasn't so much free content, there wasn't, there weren't blogs at the time. Um, And so really, craft books were, were, you know, big sellers. Now, not so much, but yours continue to do well, your big ass book of of crafts is like what, and it's like 29th Printing and is the best-selling craft book in the U.S. How, how? What is your formula? How does that happen? How does How does a cohesive franchise like like that book series happen?
1: By accident.
0: Okay, fair enough.
1: <laughs> Strickly, strictly, strictly.
0: <laughs> fair by enough. Cra- All right. Nice craft talking God to you. Saying hey. <laughs> yeah.
1: I thought you know you throw enough shit at the wall. Something's gonna stick.
0: I mean, it did. <laughs> it did. How many projects are in each book? A quadrillion. A
1: hundred, a hundred projects in start Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's really key, too, is that it used to be the formula, give or take, uh, was that people needed to see at least three things in a book or a magazine or whatever before they'd actually buy it. And now, this is just conjecture on my point, I I believe that it has to be like a minimum of ten for people to physically pick up and buy a book because there's so many other options, both for free and digitally for, so there's, there's that instant grat, instant gratification or what my friend likes to call int grat, um, that it's, you really, you have to go the extra mile or 10 miles for, uh, for a book to really do well. Has, has that been your experience as you've cause how many books are in the series now? One, two, three. Three, four?
1: Uh four. Let's see. There's big jewelry. One and two. Oh, big one ass and green, 2 the gas home decor, so four.
0: Okay. So for a book to get not not only reprinted twenty-nine times, but for for companies to get behind continuing, and it's it's a solid Stuart Taborian Chang put out beautiful books and they're a solid publisher, the formula has to be working. So do you just run with it? Do you just try to make the same thing again but with a spin or are you trying to let the ideas evolve with every step
1: i try to let the ideas evolve a lot of what i do creatively is is i don't want to chain myself to a set of ideas i want to just feel the real freedom that comes with real creativity I want to make the things that make me happy, that are fun to make, that I think people will relate to because I had fun making them. And I don't expect someone to, to look at the things I make and say, I am going to make that exact table. I want them to say, I like the way he painted that. I'm going to do that on a mirror. Mm-hmm. Or I love that he glued those crazy things all over that chair. But you know what? I'm going to glue those things on a lamp base or, you know, whatever it is. And so it's not so much about the project with me. It's about, let's discover a new technique. Let's, you know, for lack of a better phrase, think out of the box and try something different here. May not work, may work, who knows, but maybe it'll inspire your next idea. And that's what I'm trying to do, inspire their next idea.
0: One of your Many jobs as as a television host, and you've had many TV shows. Um, but let's focus on a couple of them. So, w- one of them, while you were out, focused on making home spaces, you know, more gorgeous, but in a for- in an affordable way. And now, well, most recently you've had your PBS show. One was on cable, one was on PBS. Um, Make your mark, which. Veers from that a bit, but has sort of the same um, kind of through line. And I wanted to talk to you just from a fellow fellow TV host, a fellow TV host perspective about your actual experiences working on cable versus public television. Can you talk about the parallels or contrasts of working on those two? It seems what seems like the same medium, but are very different beasts.
1: Oh, they're so different. Cable TV is uh, It's easier. There are not a lot of rules to follow. Uh, um, There's a lot of access there. Public television, because it's, I guess, subsidized by the government, there are a lot of rules that you have to follow. It is not as easy to have as much fun as you would, say, on a cable show as it is to be for public television. Um, Public television is also self-funded, so your shows have to be underwritten by companies. So if you want to do a show for PBS, let's say, that show has to be underwritten by, for me, for example, E6000 um, and Plaid Crafts and Krylon Paint and, you know, a bunch of different companies pitched in to create Make Your Mark for PBS otherwise it just wouldn't have been done. And that was very difficult trying to get the amount of money that you need to create a 13 episode series. Yeah. When you're creating something for cable, a lot of times the production company takes care of that. It's or the the network that the network takes care of it, not yeah. the production company. Yes. The network takes care of it. Your show gets picked up, it's a go, they offer you 6 to 12 episodes and you show up and do the work. Yeah. Um, For public television, you show up and you do all the work from building your set to making your projects to hosting it, putting on your own makeup and making your own Oh, you had to do your own makeup? Yeah, it's not so hard. That's
0: true. (laughs) That's true. You're a dude. I was like, I did have a makeup artist. But but I have to say, so I found the exact same thing. I found... um, it's so, it's also difficult because it, so on cable they're selling ad spots, which is frankly one of the reasons, probably the reason, why you're not seeing mainstream how-to programming anymore on major television networks and cable networks is because the ad programming pays for the shows. So, and since Home Depot and Lowe's have way more money than you know the local craft stores, it makes sense that networks have gone that route because they're getting the money. But because that money's there, you sort of have free reign to use whatever products you want to use um, and kind of play the way you, you want to play. For public television, because as you said, you have certain companies underwrite it. For you, that may not have made a big enough difference because you were also the spokesperson for these these companies or, or you had a role with them in, in some respect. But I found it really challenging because we could only use certain Items or brands, and so other company because you're also depending on other people to promote it for you. Companies in which you could not use their products were less were less likely to help you spread the love on social medias, mm-hmm. which was really hard. And I also found that there's such an archaic model for public television because you know I want everything about public television is something that I want to embrace. You know, I I love the idea of it but I found it so antiquated in its execution that it almost shoots itself in in its own foot because it has not embraced the things that make media strong now. Uh, It has
1: not, and it it was, and I will just say this with you because we're friends, was probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life, and I'm still not recovered. (laughs) I can honestly say that. It was so hard. And I've done, I don't know, six different television shows at this point. This one really almost put me six feet under.
0: Well, what I found difficult about it, and and I guess this would be the same even if you were, you know, if you were syndicated in any way on a regular, you know, on a regular network, it, it would probably arguably be just as hard. But what I found difficult was, now we're in this day and age, as we've been talking about, of social media where you just put a hashtag on it or you you know, promote it through Instagram with a pretty image, but if it's not airing in all cities, A, and then it's definitely not airing at the same time or even the same day or even with the same frequency, that means that the only way for that to work is that you have to have it... a like your website has to be on point your hashtags have to be on point everything has to be absolutely cohesive and if you're not doing that all all yourself or if you don't it like there's there's no way there's no model for success
1: no there isn't the great thing about public television is if they do like your show they will air it Forever. <laughs> forever.
0: Forever. Forever, yeah.
1: I mean, every day I, I get somebody like, your show just started airing in my uh, yeah. my area. Thank God I've been looking for it forever. Every single day that happens. So I know that it recently just started airing again and it probably got picked up in 50 new markets. Yeah.
0: Well, the challenge, and I don't know if this, this is probably less of a challenge for your medium. The challenge that that has presented for for um I did three seasons of a show that already existed. So that has its own major challenges because people are in a groove and when you change that groove, it's not always happy. But the challenge for me was um that now that it's no longer in production and hasn't been for a year or two, but has started airing, like you say, for my particular medium, people need actual patterns. So direct instructions. And mm. and it's so I'm giving this URL that doesn't really even exist anymore because the publisher that was the producer behind it has moved on, you know yeah. to green. Um, so then you're creating, but your name is still a part of it. You're creating people get a little angry, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's out of but so there's it's it's a tough situation to be in so. Um, I, I just I want public television to catch up because I just I really believe in it. I believe in public programming in general. I think there's so much strength in it, and I love the egalitarian ethos behind it. But uh, right now, as of the time of recording of this show, it has it hasn't. It just hasn't.
1: No, it's um, it's antiquated, and it. I don't know if it will catch up. I think everything else has moved at the speed of sound.
0: Well, I think you and hit the nail there's on the head. So
1: much content, so much content out there. It's it's really hard for it to compete with all of these channels that yeah. are out there. God, there's so many.
0: Although I think you hit the nail on the head by mentioning the government funding. As soon as you put the word government in, and I, and I should say I'm a total le- lefty liberal, so of course like I'm pro-government most of the time. but if we're being honest with each other, when you get the government involved, the uh, bureaucracy around it muddies up, it's like walking through molasses trying to evoke change. Mm-hmm. So it's going to take some time. and and honestly, I don't know I don't know what the motivation will be. For people to get behind it to change it now that we do have all of these other ways, all of these other platforms to show our content on, to show really great programming on.
1: I I have no idea how they would change it. I mean, they've got Masterpiece Theater. That's their that's their ace in the hole every it is. week.
0: And it it's beautiful. And
1: yeah, it's it, it is pretty fantastic. Maybe, um, who knows? Maybe they should start airing old content like iClaudius and and really, just yeah. you know, driving all their old masterpiece their s- series home. Maybe that's what it should be about,
0: so we've talked antiquated. Know. let's talk let's talk here and now, because I know you've recently um, delved into something that's that I've been um that's actually become a pretty big part of my my business, and that is live streaming um, through Facebook Live. You and I have talked about this before, and I've been doing a weekly. I'm almost hesitant to call it a show, but for lack of a better word, let's just call it a show for a year and a half now um, through the Facebook Live platform. And you, over the past few months, have have really started hitting that as well. And and I know that you you've mentioned before that you you were really reticent about the to get started and and not a, not the hugest fan of the internet before. And now you've now you know because you're a smart business person, you've you've mm-hmm. embraced that. What has your experience been been with working? Within a medium that you really don't have much control on because A, you have to shoot it on a computer or a phone, or you can buy the spendy camera, but it's not the accessibility isn't as great. B, it's live. C, the app is new, and so things don't always go well. And D, because it is so immediate, people expect it often. Go. There you go. A, B, C, D. Go. (laughs)
1: Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your um, advice because I did call you in a panic, like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I need some help. And you were very, very helpful.
0: Well, you are helpful. You're helpful. That's what we're here for. So your YouTube, let's talk about that later, too. I want to talk about what you've done with your YouTube channel. But brilliance. Okay, carry on.
1: I, I love Facebook Live. I find it a little unnerving to be live on camera. Um, I'm a I'm fine with something being taped and having a take too, but being live. Is can be a little uh, daunting, mm-hmm. so I chose to do it on Fridays at noon because um, it's
0: not too early to start drinking.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty
0: much <laughs> weekend drinking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, partly because you know I know that that would be a t- like it would I wouldn't have the hugest audience at that point, but I could leave the video recorded and up on my Facebook page for the rest of the day, and people could catch it later. Um, I read a statistic that 300% of your views happen after
0: yeah, absolutely Facebook
1: Live. Absolutely. So it's it's really important. It's just the beginning
0: of stuff. a conversation. Yeah. yeah.
1: But your hardcore fans, the people that you love, that you talk to every day on yeah. Facebook, or that always comment on your things, those people, those lovely people. That they show, show up. up. They, yes, show, they up. show up. For you. Yeah. They're on there. And it's so great to see them. Hi, and sending little hearts and like... Hi, Julie, and you know, just like oh, that looks great, and I love seeing that. It's hard to pay attention to it when it's happening, yeah. But but I, you know, every once in a while, I'll peek over and say hi and see people that I really adore just popping up in the feed, and it's super cool. And it's I love the it.
0: actual representation of what we were talking about earlier with exchanging energy. Like it's yes. happening right there in front of our eyes. It's so it's, fun.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important. I also think it's really important to. To show your most authentic self (laughs) to the people that you communicate with because they get to see you in your environment, not just these pretty pictures that you're posting on Facebook every day. They get to see you hanging out at your desk, you know, with a bunch of crap around saying, hey, look, I got this in the mail and I'm excited to work with this product and these are the things I've been working on this week and I love sharing that with people gives them a little taste of what's coming up and who I'm working with.
0: And I, I really believe that it also is a great tool for cultivating community because people feel like they're a part of something and they don't, they feel that way, but they are actually a part of something. They're a part of, you know, that little, that little boost that you get from having that interaction from people who are fully engaged in what you're doing, then sort of a imbibes more creativity. And it's just sort of a, a cyclical experience.
1: Yep, I agree
0: 100%. Before we wrap up, I wanted I wanted to go back to YouTube, because that is definitely not a um, a code that I have cracked yet. You are one of the few people um, within our little niche of being craft based TV hosts or, or video hosts, who you must have been working on YouTube-related stuff that was not for solely for another company, simultaneously while doing television, because you recently got one of the like coveted hundred thousand follower plaques from YouTube. You're now, as as of the time of recording this, over a hundred and twenty-two thousand. I have I have had a hard time with that in particular. Did you? Did you have the foresight back when you were getting, you know, when cable TV was more of a part of your business to also be trying out what, which would have, would have been then a new medium, or is this something that you just hit hard and you just like, you made it happen after the fact?
1: Yeah, I was not a fan of YouTube. I was not. (laughs) You aren't a fan of anything with screens. Yeah, I know. (laughs) but i rob and corinne who started threadbanger were at my house one night so great yeah and they said mark you need to just you just need to go on youtube you just need to start making videos
0: and just as a side note for people who may not know rob and corinne are behind threadbanger check out threadbanger on youtube it's they've got a hundred quadrillion followers Um, and they were they really did pioneer youtube craft programming i believe
1: they were one of the first YouTubers, actually, mm-hmm. yeah. and I believe YouTube actually owns the Threadbanger brand. It's part of it's part of YouTube. Mm. So um, yeah, they just said you just need to just bite the bullet and start making YouTube videos. and I did. Um, but I did not want to because it's hard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want a shirt that says that. I did not want to because it's hard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I did not know what the heck I was doing, but I did it, and and I I did it and I hit it hard. I really did. I just I just went for it yeah. and started creating a video every week, and I have not stopped. And and for the past maybe three years, I've been doing or four years, I've been to, doing making two videos a week. And
0: uh, so it takes that. It takes time and it takes consistency
1: it is the only thing that i do all day every day (laughs) wow and then everything trickles down from that from that youtube video from that particular piece of content we create all the content that goes into everything else that we do it starts with a video
0: interesting so you so it all trickles down from there and then you create all of your content around it that's a really good tip friend so you a lot of people know obviously people know that you can become a tv host they know that you can become a designer um i i talk frequently on this podcast about how when we were kids there weren't you know yarn companies and paint companies at at the local you know um, college fairs. So there are a lot of these other careers that are creative careers that people don't know about. So before we finish, I wanted to just mention a couple other things that you do that people may not know really what they are. And maybe you can sort of shed some light. So you work with many companies, but you work with two companies very closely if I'm, if I'm correct. Um, but in two different roles. So for E 600 or the company that owns E 600, you're the creative director and for Americana who does Deco art, you're a creative consultant. Can you share a little bit about what those two roles are, how they're alike and how they might be different?
1: Well, they are very like. they are alike and they are different. So for E6000, which is made by eclectic products, we talk about how we, as a creative director, we direct how um, the product will be marketed to the public the kind of projects that will be, we talk about the kind of projects we want to show. We talk about the kind of advertising um, we want to, uh, to put together. Um, we work with ad buy teams. It's, it's a little bit more on the marketing side, but I still create content for them using their products. For DecoArt as a creative consultant, Basically, I just create content with them and help them promote whatever it is that they are um, launching next. Okay. That sounds like the same thing, but it's not. <laughs> <I> probably- <laughs> it's- <laughs> so for example, for, as, a, as, a, as a creative consultant for DecoArt, for example, they said, hey, we have a new outdoor paint. We're launching soon. Um, we need to come up with some fun ideas on how you can help spread the word about this. And I say, well, I want to do a porch makeover. I want to do a video about, you know, uh, creating a backyard setting. I want to, you know, paint my front door. I want to paint my gate, whatever it is. We come up with tons of different ideas um, for content. And then I create videos that they can use to sell that product and present it to people in a way that they can, in ways that they can use it um it's a little bit more technical on the e6000 side
0: right right it sounds like one is more an overall arching business plan and one is truly just you know making things to uh promote an infrastructure that already exists
1: yes thank you for clarifying that for me (laughs)
0: Well, I want to end with just um, a little sort of excerpt from your book, Big Ass Book of Home Decor. Just a little inspirational thing. Um, Your gig, as with mine, is just to get people creative and it doesn't have to be hard and it doesn't have to be perfect. And you say that perfection is overrated. That's your motto. You say, I don't want to be perfect and I don't expect anything I make or do to be perfect embrace your creativity and don't be afraid to be perfectly imperfect. I love that. Thanks. Thank That's you. That's true. Friend. Thank you, friend, for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. So happy to do it.
0: For more information on Mark and his projects, and for a chance to win a signed copy of his big ass book of bling, go to his show notes page at vickihell.com slash craftish. And once you're there, post a comment on what colors you gravitate towards when crafting. Are you a go big or go home type of person or more of a tone on tone minimalist? We want to know. And all commenters will be entered to win. You just need to make sure to comment by March 8th at 10 p.m. Central Time. Thanks again to our sponsor Plum Deluxe Teas. Be sure to check out plumdeluxe.com/tea to enter the world of frankly delightful teas along with the community that surrounds them. Craftish is a Campbell production. It is produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. Thank you so much as always for listening to the Craftish podcast. Uh, I really love that we can spend this time together. And if you're digging it, either this episode or the entire season maybe please share it with a friend word of mouth means everything in the podcast world and if you get a moment to go into itunes and just click on those star reviews we really appreciate it on the next episode of craftish we will talk with designer yarn thing podcast host and red heart spokesperson marley bird that episode will go live next thursday Until then, as always, just make sure to take a few moments for yourself to feed your own creativity. Breathe in, craft out.